hi, welcome back to another episode of Melanade. Um, so today I'm chatting with Daniel Olivers, who is a neurodiverse performance artist and also a lecturer at Queen Mary University in London, yeah? yeah. Um, if you want to say hi, she'll just, <laughs> just be able to pick up. Okay, um, I was pretty good at that. But yeah, so we've just done a really interesting workshop. We had one last week as well, run by Daniel Olivers, who is getting us to like explore awkwardness um, in a performance and how you can like, yeah, make that happen. But not you like, I found it interesting you saying like, not the awkwardness. How did you describe awkwardness? Like what so was it for not you? The, not the kind of awkwardness that's linked necessarily to shame or embarrassment or like personal conflict but more like dysfunctional ways of doing things um, or things that are related to not understanding rules or um, or yes so kind of um, if you think about someone doing something awkwardly rather than someone um, causing an awkward situation yeah and then is that to explore that because you think it's linked linked to dyspraxia because obviously dyspraxia like main, main, first thing that comes to people's heads is being maybe like a bit clumsy and yeah exactly so that, there's an overlap I think between awkwardness and clumsiness um, and I think you know clumsiness also is not just about uh, physical coordination or dropping plates or whatever but it can also be a kind of you can think of someone being like socially clumsy or um, yeah so that, so that there's uh, into, yeah, finding social situations uh, difficult or, or not being able to read a room or read this situation because of the executive bit of the brain that, that um, sorts that stuff out. Um, yeah, and I guess so, I think, um, I, uh, so the, in terms of there being an, uh, an overlap between those two things, I guess what's important to, uh, to say is that my work has always explored things like clumsiness or dysfunction or awkwardness or um, calamity um, and it did that a long time before I was diagnosed as dyspraxic. Um, so in a way um, it was a ret- it's a retrospective thing of saying like, well, I'll make this work it's making work anyway, and then suddenly you get diagnosed, I got diagnosed with dyspraxia, and that meant that I could think about uh, think much more about the link between my performance practice and my experience of daily life and my kind of um, ways of being with other people. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. Then. So you were kind of exploring awkwardness and clumsiness before you were using exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you had already like picked up that you. Do, were you interested in that, or had you? Or was it because you found it? Really, I mean, so there's a couple of ways of framing it. I guess one is just about pleasure. Like there's a certain kind of, certain kind of performance that I enjoyed watching that I wanted to be around, and that those were often performances where there was at least a risk of calamity or a risk, of, an open risk of like, of dysfunction or failure, um, and uh, not in you know, and and where I often would go to those those places. And that, that would be would be accepted, or would be okay, or would even be celebrated. And so I really wanted, to, I guess, I was wanting to make work like that because just because I think initially it's just about a desire, a pleasure in in those scenarios, a pleasure in in um, in sort of um, 
in, the, in that difficulty and that complexity of like questioning whether someone is capable, questioning whether someone uh, is um, uh, someone's authority or someone's kind of capability when it comes to performing has always been of interest to me and kind of rescuing, your, rescuing oneself from difficult situations or clumsy situations within performance um, has always been part of what I find enjoyable. And then on the other hand, there was, you know, I guess from when I was young, an interest in punk and punk ethics and punk politics, um, especially rooted in the idea that, like, not everyone has the time or the materials or the, um, or the like, cultural capital to be able to put together, like, highbrow, well-functioning, well-lit, well-rehearsed shows. It's just not, that's just not accessible to everyone. So for me, the thing that was always important and enjoyable about punk was that level of accessibility. Amazing, thank you. Um, and so it's also about yeah, like um, uh, that DIY, you know, what people call a DIY aesthetic, um, uh, which is always odd because you know, DIY is supposed to look. If you do DIY at home, you get yeah. in trouble if it doesn't look nice. Um, but. Um, yeah, so, so so there was like a punk politics there, very loose in a very juvenile way, which I kind of held on to, um, and then um, and, and alongside a kind of just a pleasure really, and then um, later on, I guess I began to think about it more in terms of a kind of, I guess, an identity politic when it came to thinking about hidden disabilities, dyspraxia, and uh, neurodiversity. Really. Yeah. So so when were you diagnosed with? Um, dyspraxia. Yeah. Um, when? Tuna. Mm, that's a good choice, choice of choice. Choice of panini. <laughs> it's the best one. Um, so, uh, when I was on doing my masters, which is in two thousand, I think two thousand and eight to two thousand and ten, masters in theatre and performance at Queen Mary University of London, where I now teach. Yeah. Um, I think it was when I was writing. I think it's just got this feedback to an essay um, where someone said, you should, I wonder if you're dyspraxic, you should get it, get it checked out, um, uh, which I did. And, um, I get, it had always been something that was in my mind. I knew about dyspraxia. I had friends that were dyspraxic. I think um, there was even, uh, my mum was even told that there was a possibility that I was dyspraxic when I was very, very little, but and so she was always, Helping um, with different things to help me kind of uh, get by, I guess, or, 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 or be able to do that. Yeah. But the actual uh, diagnosis came when I was like, I guess, probably 29 or 30 or something. Really? Um, God. When I was uh, doing my master's. But you, so that was the, did you get support then in your master's once you had been diagnosed, yeah. but you hadn't had support throughout? No. That's the. I've spoken to a lot of people during this Melanade podcast or just spoken to people about when they were diagnosed and I was really fortunate that my mum picked up on it like mm. that was dyslexic anyway very early and then found out I had dyscalculia in secondary school and then just now when I did like another test at, here at Central and um, the woman was like oh you have dyspraxic tendencies um, the main thing is the way I help hold, hold a pen so I find it really hard. I can't even like if I write maybe like two sentences, my hand really aches. And that's because I like oh, yeah, I'm left-handed and I just. She was like, "You hold it really awkwardly," is what she said to yeah. me, <laughs> and I was like, "Exactly." So that kind of awkwardness is what interests me. Yeah. When you say that you, you hold it awkwardly. Um, 
great. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I mean, I guess um, so. So I got you know the really amazing um, person that was assigned to me to help me me to write my essays and stuff. Um, who was very just really uh, open to whatever I brought with her. And I guess when you're working like postgraduate level, she and she helped me through my, my PhD as well. You know, it's not like it's expected that you kind of know what you're doing and you can be trusted to get on this, to be able to, you can trust that your method and your way of doing things is working for you. So yeah. she would just make sure that whatever I knew I needed help with, she would help, help me with. Yeah. Rather than, I think, which is something I have less of a, I find difficult or challenging when I think about uh, the kind of support that seems to be in place from earlier, which is much more about like, where it's much more in danger of like function, um, framing lots of, Things are inherent to your being as being dysfunctional or being yeah. things that need correcting, which I find this is why neuro, when neurodiversity, the idea of neurodiversity comes in or the neurodiversity movement, it's really important because it allows us to fight to talk back to that. So this yeah. is not about. Yes, there are definitely things I need help with in order to be happy and healthy and, and feel like I'm. Uh, uh, and do the things I want to do and then there are other things that I don't need you to tell me that I need to do them better or different because they're just they actually work. just offers it it'll work for me yeah and, and also and so I guess thinking about the kinds of people or scenes or jobs or cultures that I sought out <clears throat> before I was diagnosed they were always ones in which I could be happily dyspraxic I think to a certain extent um, and I think that um, that's also really important. I think that's not about, I think to seek out scenes, groups of people, work, whatever it is, cultures where um, at first and foremost, there's a kind of tolerance of a diverse range of different ways of being. Yeah. Is, is for me much more, that's where, that's what for me support is. Yeah. It's not about going like, oh, you understand my dyspraxia and therefore, and you can like help me to structure an essay. It's actually about going like I walk into this room and I see a bunch of weirdos are all weird in their own different ways or outsiders or being framed as other or framed as like not welcome or, or and that this is a space in which those uh, in which you know that isn't the case yeah definitely and so therefore whether you doesn't mean that I meet people like I hang out with people that are also dyspraxic but I think there's I often find I like to think that I find groups of people wherein there is an understanding and a tolerance of dif difference or clumsiness or outsiderness. Um, that it's just about a shared experience. That's really important to me. Yeah, um, I definitely was like drawn to performance because it was where I could mm. tell stories yeah. without having to like read stories. And also like uh, I found I could read a script I couldn't, I'd struggle if I was just told to get up and read it, but we would have looked at it previously and like devised something around it, and the physical movement while reading somehow just made my reading better, and just sitting down and reading something is what I struggled with, but, so I was definitely, I agree with you. So I've just found neurodiversity now, like that word since coming to uni, and I'm so happy for like finding it, finding the movement, because it definitely is like, how I always felt like I mm. like never felt like my dyslexia was a disability. No. And like I, f I mean, yeah. So I find it really weird, like just doing those applications at the moment for going into like trying to find jobs and stuff like that. And they're all written applications before the interview process, and they're all really long. And I'm finding I'm spending like 
two weeks writing them for ages on it and yeah, yeah. maybe other people aren't so that's just now a hurdle that I'm having that's in outside of education is going into the work life and that's like my first hurdle that I'm finding but on the form it's like are you disabled do you consider yourself to have disability I never really know what to put because I don't I don't consider it disabling to them in yeah, exam or yeah. I think um, it's a really important kind of um, complexity there. I know that um, I was in a really interesting talk where there was two very different positions on this, and one was that one was that you know we neurod- if we kind of um, embrace the idea of neurodiversity, then we have to let go of the idea of disability and, and think about this differently from a disabled, from disability politics or disability awareness. And, and sort of made that claim really strongly, but then also there was a counterclaim, which I, I guess is more how I feel, which is that you know, um, first of all, if you take the social model of disability, yeah. you can t- I know that there are disabling scenarios for me, so I seek out scenarios that are not disabling. Uh, um, but I know that, um, and I also know that if I tick box that says, yes, I have a disability because I'm dyspraxic, that it's less likely that the environment I'm entering into, whatever that form is for, is going to be disabling, because it understands if you have a certain kind of access requirements that need to be put in place. Um, but also, in terms of the move, you know, the disability movement in itself, apparently, and again, I'm trying to remember how this went out, but in the 80s, there was kind of a split between... Uh, the disability movement and the deaf uh, movement and uh, um, deaf and hard of hearing wherein um, the, this movement emerged from, from, from deaf people or people with hard of hearing that was around language and it was saying this is not a problem of ability it's actually a problem of language mm-hmm. um, and it's just about um, we, we speak a minority language and that was that, that was for many reasons really obviously generative and great and strong and clear but also there's at this talk I found out that that was apparently quite harmful or, or had potential to cause so arguments around how that could be harmful to the disability movement because this is like this fracturing this kind of yeah. uh, splitting off and this um, so in a way I guess like the only issue I have with, with um, defining as disabled is, is, is that I wouldn't want to take away uh, support or kind of uh, from someone who has more needs than I, than I do, or to suggest that my situation is comparable to someone who, you know, someone who needs kind of twenty four hour care. Or, you know, I collaborated I collaborated with Catherine Amanello, who's um, oh yeah, it's you at the yard for now. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, this really great kind of similarly like punky artist. Um, and you know, it becomes almost a point of humour in these shows that I can talk that um, for her who who you know requires support, extensive support, just to be able to have a drink, just to be able to like um, uh, uh, um, communicate. She needs a, a microphone. Um, that, that her experience as a disabled person is any way, in any way comparable to mine as someone who like finds it a bit difficult to organise my thoughts sometimes. Or, um, so I guess that is where there's a there's a complexity or a challenge yeah definitely and that I think as well like with my dyslexia because I my mum picked up on it quite young I've had my mum made sure I got the help I needed and again I found strategies to cope with the things that I found difficult and there's strategies for do, to do things my way mm. and learn my way but then I have some friends who have 
have only just been diagnosed and almost they might have more severe signs of dyslexia than me myself or like more that maybe I don't always notice mine anymore I didn't I don't know so like there's theirs is very different to mine so they might find their dyslexia more disabling than I Mm. might find than I find mine now Mm. which is it is definitely I think it's your own personal I feel like that's what the neurodiversity movement is saying in a yeah, there's something, there's a kind of self-responsibility to be really, to keep checking in about the resources that you're taking, the space that you're taking in these places, that is, can only really be um, rooted in your own ethics or your own kind of sense of, of what you need, I think. You know, so I was at a talk by uh, the author of Neurotribes, Steve Silberman, and someone at that, you know, um, quite understandably said like it, 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 that there is there's become this kind of what's the word like the kind of this um, thing where basically if you, you know if you prefer going to the library than the pub then you suddenly get like, oh, I'm on the spectrum this is not but this is not the same as someone who who you know is unable to speak is unable to uh, uh, you know who, who is um, who's who's on a very you know on a minutia level is the experiences of life is severely affected by their um, their autism. Yeah. Um, this is not and 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 the, um and so that in at this talk there was you know this, the beginnings of this debate around how do you police neurodiversity? We don't want to police neurodiversity, mm-hmm. but also there's a kind of I think there is and this is something I talked to with Jess Tom as well, Tourette's here, where it's like um, you do need to be honest with yourself about whether you are taking resources, taking space um, that are actually set up for people who are who experience life in a different way from you and, and, and who um, but it's complicated, it's difficult. It is very yeah. I'm just reading Judy Singer's um Great. The, yeah. the, her book at the moment and she obviously she uses like Aspie as like a what's it? Um, people with autism who are like very functioning. Mm. She's like that's what I'm talking about, a functioning autistic yeah. person not where it because it can be really hard for some people so yeah there's yeah. a lot of interesting debates as well around those terms high functioning and, and low functioning because I think there's in my understanding you know again this, most of my understanding of this comes from blogs or twitter or sort of um, self uh, people who self advocate online um, that it, it, you don't really have high functioning or low functioning people necessarily uh, and even those terms of itself are obviously really problematic and, and, um, and need to be um, kind of complicated. But also, you can have high-functioning and low-functioning days or high-functioning and low-functioning scenarios. Yeah. And you can go like, well, this is today, like, you know, in my, again, this isn't my experience, but speaking from what I've read, um, people who share their experiences, you know, it can be that, you know, they have days where people have days where, yeah, they would be, they feel like they do not function cannot function and they have days where they you would no, not know that there was any that they had any kind of neurodivergency you know um, so it's not as um, yeah it's kind of in, again it's another one of those kind of difficult difficult um, terminologies that we yeah. have to be careful how we use them um, no definitely it's, it's very interesting I've read an article my mum showed it to me I can't remember oh they read the Daily Telegraph and um, in it it was saying that there was 
at Warwick University or something. There was a lecture about how dyslexia isn't real and some scientists are trying to prove that it's not a thing. And it's actually, I'm going to see it tomorrow. There's another lecture as well they're doing. They're like talking about it again because of the uproar of people being like, this is ridiculous. And it was all down in Warwick, the council were like, taking the funding that was for people with dyslexia and dyspraxia to get tested. They'd like got rid of all that funding so kids weren't getting tested and they were just kind of left to have to find ways to cope with it themselves which is more I guess because I haven't been working yet my, all my annoyance is the way that the education system is run and the way that it's all down to so many exams now luckily for me I was just finishing when they got rid of coursework so I had like a bit of coursework and now it's all exams and I just I know that I wouldn't have been able to coped with that that's when I would have really like struggled even with extra time in a laptop yeah so that's that yeah so I'm gonna go to that tomorrow <laughs> and I can see what it's like I feel like I might get really annoyed or it might I think it'd be really interesting either way but yeah I mean I think in a way I've these are all the things that are really exciting about or exciting about, but, um, interesting about thinking about neurodiversity and or, or thinking about what might call hidden disabilities uh, and how they're diagnosed. You know, this is not a, I didn't, I, I had a, a psychologist diagnose me based, based on my response to a test. This is not someone that like walked into my brain and went like these things aren't connecting properly. Yeah. This is someone who basically said, you did well on this, you didn't do so well on this. Therefore, we're going to and we're going to call that that gap between being good at this and being like not not so good at this. That gap means you, we can call you dyspraxic. That seems to be what it is. Yeah, um, yeah. And so I think that does mean there's a and also I think understandably there's a lot of self-diagnosis uh, in around neurodiversity um, and that and, and and you know partly that's just to do with the fact that getting a diagnosis as an adult is just it's really so hard. Difficult. Yeah. Um, so like I. I had diagnosis in primary school, then secondary school, they were like, well, your primary school stuff shows that you do, and they tested me again within the school, but the actual official one, I never got, because my secondary school didn't want to pay for it, and then I came here, and they were like, I showed them all my forms I've had for years, like all my help, and they were like, no, you have to pay 300 pounds to get the psychologist. So I got the, like, the other day, actually, like last term, I got the little test before you go to psychologist and that's when she was like oh you have a bit of dyspraxia as well but now I'm like I'm doing fine without the extra help I'm in my third year where I was like I'm just gonna carry on doing what I'm doing and I won't so in a way it's not self-diagnosed but I haven't got that official thing that will get me the the help and that, that's down to the funding of it because it does cost costs a lot for schools to get that done but I almost feel like when people go into education and start learning to read, they should just get tested because it would just make an app. And then they can learn ways that they need to learn and find out things that they're really good at and not feel like it's a depressing, horrible thing, which is what it can do to some people for sure. But yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on it and for the workshop. All right. Thank you. <laughs>